We'll be reading from Psalm chapter 33. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with a harp, make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy, for the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him, because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us, just as we open you. You may be seated. Good morning. Well, if you came in here uh, through these doors this morning... You probably noticed it's, it's a little chillier than normal. At least it feels chillier to some. I, I'm very comfortable. Uh, I, I'm one of the only ones that has a long sleeve shirt and a tie around his neck. Uh, so I, I'm a little bit more comfortable perhaps than you all. But that being said, if, if you need to uh, stand and, and move around to get the blood circulating... Uh, especially for the folks sitting on this side of the room, um, I understand this morning. Um, hopefully, it will uh, keep everyone awake. Uh, the coolness of the room. Uh, I pray this morning that uh, the Lord would be pleased as His Word is put forth. And to that end, I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. Father in heaven. We thank you for leading us in paths of righteousness. We praise you for being our good shepherd and providing everything we need for godliness in life. As followers of Jesus Christ, we find ourselves daily undergoing trials of various kinds. Our messages hated and our voices zealously stifled. Fathers, we open your word today. I pray that you would help us to see your plans for us. Pray that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit the truths you would have us to grasp and then walk in. 
Prepare us to speak your name. And remind us always that your counsel stands forever. I pray, Father, that we as a nation would return to our first love and be a people who hope in your mercy. And we ask, Lord, for your mercy to be upon us. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. We are postponing Paul's trial in Caesarea before Governor Felix that we might once again return to the first principles of the oracles of God, as the Hebrew writer says in chapter 5, verse 12. Psalm 33 is our main text for this morning. And in this psalm, God is highly exalted. Right where he should be. He's positioned as the creator of the world who spoke all things into being. He's deemed the judge over all creation. And he's recognized as the deliverer of one's soul from death. This past Friday, many of you probably heard the news. The Supreme Court of the United States of America landed on a decision. They ruled five to four in favor of allowing same-sex marriage. Five to four. That's a competitive baseball score. But it ought not be the score coming from the highest judicial court in our land on an age-old institution called marriage. You know, it was not uncommon in the early days of our country to speak on political matters. It was not an untouchable subject. I have a a two-volume collection I just simply brought the one because they're fairly thick in nature. But this is one of the volumes. Political sermons of the American founding era. When our country was coming to be, there were many pastors who were speaking to the foundations of our country upon which we were built. And many of these pastors are speaking about warnings of straying from these foundational principles. These folks weren't ashamed to speak of the name of the Lord Jesus, and they were unafraid to consider what men might think should they open God's word on the issues that are being tossed around in government circles. See, whether we speak of family, or whether we speak of the church, or whether we speak of the government... It's important for us to understand that each one of these entities comes from, flows out of, is derived from the same source. The Lord God. And this morning I'd like to address Psalm 33. And speak to the hope that we still have. Even as we gather here today. Having been forced-fed a meal that remains quite intolerable 
in the depths of our souls. The implications of same-sex marriage not only impact the current generation, but sound a deafening alarm to the generations yet to come. This generation that's being raised today, known as, it's termed in different circles as the I generation. We have iPhones, iPads, I this, I that. It's the I generation. It's also known as the, the information generation. No other generation has grown up with as much information as this one before us. Those growing up in your home are going to be the first generation to know marriage by a different set of definitions. Proverbs 22, 6, many of you are familiar with that particular verse. It speaks to training up a child in the way he ought to go. And when he's old, he will not what? Stray or depart from it. Parents, this becomes all the more significant in light of Friday's ruling. If you are training your children in the foundational truths of the scriptures, you are preserving God's truths. To not train them in the ways of the Lord is to ensure that the scriptures will disappear off the map. They will eventually get lost in the generation handoff. And the biblical values and the rich heritage that once defined the United States of America will be a distant memory. Our family this week, we were in our, our family worship time earlier in the week. We were reading through 3 John. We've almost arrived at the end of the scriptures together as a family. We're venturing into Revelation. But on this particular evening, we were reading 3 John... And I was reminded of one of the verses that we spent some time talking about. In verse 4, where it says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. And I remember as we were gathered together, I remember talking about that verse just briefly with our family. And I was telling them, children, how important it is. What a joy it really would be for mom and I to know down the road that every single one of you, all of you, are walking with the Lord. Not just up here, know about Him, but you're walking with Him. And then just a few days later, there's this ruling that comes out on marriage. And I look back on that time, 3 John, with the family and the instruction there that the Lord provided. And I'm grateful to the Lord for that time because it's almost seemed now looking backward that he prepared the soil of the heart for what was to come later in the week. Are we communicating, dads and moms, are we communicating some other message in our homes that would lead our children to think that something else is more important, more significant than walking in the truth. Have we replaced walking in the truth with an academic pursuit? With athletic honors? 
with some other extracurricular activity pursuit. I pray that each parent here truly has no greater joy than to hear that his or her children are walking in the truth. Listen to what the Lord said to Jeremiah, to those in his day. Jeremiah 7 is the reference. The Lord said to Jeremiah, this is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor receive correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Truth has perished. Speaking outside the White House on Friday, the president of our nation issued a few words. I have the transcript of his statement before me. I'd like to just simply read some of his opening words. He says, our nation was founded on a bedrock principle that we are all created equal. A project of each generation is to bridge the meaning of those founding words with the realities of changing times. Think about that for just a moment. A never-ending quest to ensure those words ring true for every single American. You know, it seems that we ventured out into the pasture on all created equal. We've translated that somehow, some way, what, what ends up getting put forward is equal rights. And we've placed equal rights as the top billing in the land. God and his word no longer matter. The Constitution doesn't seem to matter all that much anymore. In fact, Chief Justice Roberts is quoted following this ruling handed down Friday. He's quoted saying something much in line with what was just spoken. He says, quote, this court is not a legislature. By the way, Chief Justice Roberts is one of four who dissented. He's one of four who said, no, this is not a good idea. He says, this court is not a legislature. Whether same-sex marriage is a good idea should be of no concern to us. Under the Constitution... Judges have power to say what the law is, not what it should be. Although the policy arguments for extending marriage to same-sex couples may be compelling, the legal arguments for requiring such an extension are not. Now, there are some truths here in what Chief Justice Roberts puts forward. There's also something in here I wish he would have elaborated on and shared He makes comment about whether same-sex marriage is a good idea should be of no concern to us. But he doesn't tell us why it should be of no concern to us. He doesn't get at the root of the issue. The 
that ought to be one of our concerns. And this is coming from a man who said no. And praise God he says what he says here. Praise God he does stand up for this. But I'm still concerned as I read and as I hear what's happening because even those who said no are saying no because legislative branch ought to legislate. Judicial branch ought to interpret the law as it is. This is still absent. This is still left hanging. Do we see this? One of the issues constantly heard is this demand for equal rights. Two men and two women, one of the other scenarios, desiring to be married and have the same rights as one man and one woman. Same-sex marriage is wielding the equal rights flag. Saying, in other words, we are entitled to marriage benefits because, remember, after all, we're founded on the bedrock principle that we are all created equal. Equal rights has turned into gotta have it because I'm entitled to it. Equal rights cries, you have something that I have a right to, and for me not to have it constitutes oppression, intolerance. To deny it is to treat me as less than a human being. And that's just it, friends. Everyone today, have you noticed this? Everyone today deserves something. Have you noticed that? We live among a culture of entitlement. We want things given to us because things aren't fair. That's usually code for I'm not getting what I want. You see, justice is no longer getting what you deserve, but getting what's right for me. When people cry, I want justice, they're oftentimes saying that someone wronged them and they feel entitled to something in return. Church, listen, the the issue isn't stopping with a favorable five to four victory for same-sex marriage. Seems that, that many public offices were celebrating Friday's victory by putting on display the rainbow pride of colors. The White House, in its rainbow beauty, had displayed those colors outside the building. The White House, the the home of our president, the leader of our country, and his staff, was decorated in this rainbow lighting. What are the American people left to think? Seems that the leader of our land is behind this decision wholeheartedly. In fact, it was, it was stated that after the ruling was handed down, our president was on the telephone with the main plaintiff in the case, congratulating him. Now, I don't know if that's proper protocol. I would highly doubt that the president of our land makes regular phone calls to people who win cases in the Supreme Court.
Where's God in America? Based upon Friday's decision, we can assume that the majority of our judges at the federal level see no basis for God's laws anymore. Roy Moore, in his book, So Help Me God, and we need his help in a great way. He said, Thomas Jefferson stated in the very first sentence of the Declaration of Independence that America is entitled to exist as a power on earth because of the laws of nature and of nature's God. As John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States, later explained, the laws of nature and nature's God, of course, presupposes the existence of God, the moral ruler of the universe, and a rule of right and wrong, of just and unjust, binding upon man, preceding all institutions of human society and of government. Jefferson and John Quincy Adams agreed that God's law formed the basis for America's law and government. See, our our starting point for morality is far from God today. And yet God is the supreme architect overseeing all things in this world, past, present, things yet to come. And so as we look at Psalm 33, I want you to look at how it begins in these first three verses. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. The righteous here are invited And called into worship. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. When you read the entirety of this psalm, the first three verses almost seem disjointed and out of place. But placed up front and geared at the righteous, it establishes why we're here. (laughs) Why are we here? To worship the Almighty God. And to praise his holy name. That's why we're here. Worship and praise is to be foundational in our lives as a Christian. Regardless of what the Supreme Court rulings might be, the Supreme God that we serve is to be worshipped and praised all of our days. And in fact, the psalm goes on to render a basis for our worship to God. Verses 4 through 7. For the word of the Lord is right. All his works are done in truth. He loves righteousness. He loves justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. You know, we pause right there because it sure doesn't seem at times like the earth is full of the Lord's goodness, does it? This past week is one example of that. It sure doesn't seem very good. And yet the psalmist says the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. 
By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. And we see verse 7, his control, his authority over the seas and the ocean depths. The call then goes out to a broader audience. Notice in verses 8 and 9. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world. How many? All of them. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. You see, the basis, notice this, the basis for all the earth and all the inhabitants of the world fearing the Lord, standing in awe of Him, is creation. What God did, what God spoke, and it came to be. All the earth is to fear the Lord because of the certainty of what God did in creating the world. And I realize even as I speak those words, there are many people today who do not believe God is the creator. As maker of this world, he demands and deserves all of his creatures to stand in awe of him. There is no one, no state governor, no national president who can rise above Almighty God. No matter the speed of technology, no matter the pace of change being advocated in the country, there is no title or position that rises above the God who spoke the world into being. As you keep reading Psalm 33, You notice a significant contrast being put forth in verses 10 and 11. Follow along with me and see if you can find the contrast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. You see, the counsel of the nations might seem powerful. It might seem well thought out. It might result in favorable five to four rulings from a supreme court of the land. But that counsel pales in contrast to the counsel of the Lord. Do you see that in the word? In fact, the text seems to advocate that the counsel of the nations can be thwarted by the counsel of the Lord. He brings the counsel of the nations to what? Nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord overrides and overpowers and has its way over the nations. I was grateful to hear words from Psalm 2 because they fit right here. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against whom? The Lord. And against his anointed, 
saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And we see this picture of God in heaven and he's laughing, he's scoffing, he's deriding this act from the people that he's created. In the last few verses of that psalm, he says, now therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with what? Fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry. And you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. See, as it pertains to marriage, what does the counsel of the Lord have to say about that? And we could stand up here for for quite a long time and go from the beginning in Genesis to the end in Revelation and recount what God's word specifically says about these things. His counsel stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generation. And this is instructive, friends. The current administration has been advocating this theme of change. Right from the beginning, that's been the buzzword, change. You've noticed that probably. Change. The president alluded to this in his opening comments on Friday when he said that our nation was founded on a bedrock principle that we are all created equal. A project of each generation is to bridge the meaning of these founding words with the realities of changing times. So the president of the land is submitting a bedrock principle and in turn calling the people of the nation of each succeeding generation to tweak the meaning of the principle to make it fit who they are and what they want to be. Forget that the meaning has already been established by God. A bedrock principle is not quite bedrock if it's subject to manipulation with each succeeding generation. Do we see this? The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. All. So what's that saying? I believe it's pointing to the nature and to the character of our holy God. He's everlasting and his counsel that is good in the days of the psalmist is still good today in the 21st century. He never changes. He's been faithful through the ages, has he not? And he's faithful even yet today, and he will remain faithful in these hard days ahead. He is a faithful God. Notice in verse 12, there is a blessing. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own generation, his own inheritance, excuse me. You know, we read this verse and we oftentimes feel secure, don't we? We tend to read this and attach the United States of America in the spot where it says the nation. While it is true that this nation began with an ear bent toward the Lord, they started out desiring the Lord and his word to guide their steps. Now here we are, some nine to ten generations later, if we take 25 years per generation, 
We're between nine and ten generations removed. And we've fallen far away from the Lord's counsel. Let's call it what it is. We have sinned as a nation against our holy God. Our nation seems content discarding God altogether from the courtroom, from the schools, from the workplace. Acknowledgement of the name of God, recognizing the Lord as the one who has been at work in our history. We are one nation made up of 50 states. But we are far removed, church, from being one nation under God. We live among a people who prefer to be under no one. Reminds me in many ways, and it's sort of ironic, that it's found in the book of Judges. Chapter 21, verse 25, the last book, last verse of the book. Describes the, the culture of that day. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Here's the sad part. We do have a king. We call it today a president. We have rulers. And yet what is right is oftentimes not dictated by the laws of history. <laughs> what is right has been handed down by nine men who wear black robes. Five of whom gave an opinion of what was deemed right in their own eyes. They got swept downstream in the current persuasion of our changing times. And that became evident on Friday when the laws of men became a substitute for the laws of God. Marriage is not unclear or fuzzy. It's not. It's not a difficult institution to discern. Marriage between a man and a woman has been in place literally from the beginning of creation. We've had years of history, years of examples, and yet the council of the nations is to redefine marriage to include same-sex couples. Now, some will argue that, that this is not redefining marriage. I believe it is. And here's why. See, when you take what God has already defined and you add to it, you have redefined what God's already put in place. And by the way, he has a stern warning about adding and taking away from his word, doesn't he? It's found in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. And it goes like this in verses 18 and 19. It says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, listen what happens. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. I don't know about you, but there's one that stands out in Revelation. It's those 100-pound hailstones. I, I, I sometimes picture what that might have been like. And one of the things put forth here is that when we start adding to what God's already put forth, he's going to add to us the plagues that are written in this book. I have no desire for any of those plagues. <laughs> but he also goes on, he says, 
And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of the prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. You know, Deuteronomy chapter 28 speaks of blessings and what? Curses. Blessings come as the people of God walk in obedience to his word. Curses come when his people choose to walk in disobedience to his commands. If the nation is not blessed, then let's not be fooled into thinking there's some neutral moral ground for the country to settle into. (laughs) Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. If our country, listen, if our country is not following the Lord and the signs seem to be pointing in that direction, this downward spiral, this slippery slope, then could it be said of us, cursed is the nation whose God is not the Lord. We are missing out on God's blessing as a nation Why? Because we don't think much of God, friends. We don't consider His mighty works. We don't believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Or if we do, we hold to Jesus and someone or something else. Jesus is the way, He's the truth, He's the life. No one comes to the Father except through the Son, Jesus. That is one of the most exclusive claims in all of Scripture, isn't it? He is the way. A lot of people get feathers ruffled on that one. That's what God says in His Word. We don't operate according to truth anymore. We don't even want His truth in the picture anymore. We're doing our best work. We're doing our best work, it seems. Seeing that God's name is deleted from the history record. With Friday's ruling, the word of God becomes more of a menace to society. For it's contrary to the law of the land now. Is marriage set aside for a man and woman only? Or is it available for two men and or two women? The law of the land says it's okay. But this Bible says it's not. Is this a problem? Justice Anthony Kennedy, he shared the Supreme Court's opinion following the decision. Listen to what he said. This is, by the way, he was on the side who said yes to this. No union is more profound than marriage, for it embodies the highest ideas of love, fidelity, devotion, sacrifice, and family. In forming a marital union, two people become something greater than once they were. As some petitioners in, this, in these cases demonstrate, marriage embodies a love that may endure even past death. It would misunderstand these men and women to say they disrespect the idea of marriage. <laughs> I don't quite understand that statement. 
He goes on and says, their plea is that they do respect it, respect it so deeply that they seek to find in it fulfillment for themselves. Their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness, excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. Do you see? That's sort of put in a, a negative light, marriage. It's one of, one of civilization's oldest institutions. Therefore, in the fine print, it seems to say, we need to change it. They ask for equal dignity, or as we spoke earlier, equal rights. They ask for equal dignity in the, in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. End quote. Justice Kennedy, Justice Ginsburg, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, and Justice Breyer all exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Instead of fearing the one who established one of civilization's oldest institutions, they caved to the pressures and fears of men. They rationalized the truth of God and catered the definition to fit the lonely hearts pining for marriage rights in the land. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. The Bible is clear on this church. Same-sex marriage is not God's plan, but man's. The Supreme Court made a ruling that God had already ruled on. The Supreme Court made a ruling where they had no business making a ruling. The judiciary is not a legislative branch. And yet time and time again, it seems, laws come trumpeting forth from the benches of the judiciary. I heard our president speak on how Friday's Supreme Court decision was good for our country. He mentioned the phrase life, liberty, pursuit of happiness as though he were cataloging the ruling under such a headline. Thomas Jefferson, in Roy Moore's book, he goes on, he says of Thomas Jefferson that the declaration was that it was self-evident that God was our creator and the grantor of rights such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. God being the grantor of such rights. So which is it? When we look at this, does man lobby and pursue his own definition of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Or is God the one who grants the people such life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness? If God is the one who grants such a thing, then is he not also the one who gets to define the terms? In God's eyes, is it possible for the pursuit of happiness to include same-sex marriage? When your pursuit of happiness, life, and liberty counters what God has already spoken in his word of truth, then it's a moot point to celebrate any court ruling. It's nothing more than a pursuit of the flesh. Operating under the banner of the flesh, the Bible says in Romans 8 verse 8, we cannot please God. We cannot. It's not possible. So we can't have it both ways. See, we can't on one hand acknowledge God and say we are one nation under God. 
By the way, that too has taken a hit over the years, hasn't it? We can't acknowledge him, and yet on the other hand, want nothing to do with him. (laughs) The front page, it's oftentimes seen in the star, that verse from 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Oh, it looks good. It's a great verse. Why is it that our paper has such a hard time advocating things of the Lord? Our money has, in God we trust. In God we trust. And yet we live as though God were some distant relative hardly ever consulted. You see, we're okay with God as long as he stays at a distance. As long as he doesn't interfere with what we want to do. Our nation is quick to acknowledge God when the bottom falls out. We go back to 9-11 as an example of this. It was said that at that point in time, there was an overflow of people making their way into the church buildings across the country. You know, death has a tendency to awaken even the coldest of hearts. But over time, some of these same people revert back to the mire from which they came. They say they tried God. He didn't work. They speak of trying him on like they might try on a new suit. It just didn't fit. And so he looked elsewhere. See, when this nation was founded some nine generations ago, God was not an afterthought, church. He was not an afterthought, but he was an integral part of the foundations. People actually believe the scriptures in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Let's say, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. People actually believed there was a right and a wrong. Morals and values meant something. When Johnny got in trouble at school, the teacher disciplined him as a consequence of his misbehavior. And then when Johnny went home, he was also disciplined by his father. And taught that he ought not disrespect, dishonor the authority in the classroom. It was taken seriously. Discipline was not deemed abuse or against someone's rights. But the proper order and structure of society. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 11 says, No no chastening, no discipline seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been what? Trained by it. Today the thought of being trained by God's disciplinary hand is unheard of in our country's government. Our nation has decided that God's laws and commandments are not that important. Our nation has profaned God's sacred institution of marriage, which he put in place in the beginning. 
before constitutions, before declarations, before governments were ever established, God brought the woman to the man. That's Genesis 2.22. God brought the woman to the man. He literally brought the woman to the man. Nowhere in the pages of Scripture is it deemed good in God's eyes to have two men married or two women married. Those situations are present, but they are never put forth in a favorable light before the God who instituted marriage. The suitable helper for Adam was Eve. The suitable helper for man was woman. Look at verses 13 through 15. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from the place of his dwelling. He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. You know, I deem it somewhat of a frightening thing that, to know that the Lord is looking on at what's happening here in this country. He's looking. He's seeing. He's taking inventory of the situation. He's not passively sitting by, but is in his dwelling place, considering the works of each man. All the inhabitants of the earth he can view from his heavenly abode. And I'm reminded of something that happened back in the book of Genesis. Church, do you know why God overthrew the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Genesis 18 and 19 recount that visit from the Lord. The Lord had heard what was going on. He sends his angelic messengers down to check it out. In Genesis 18, 20, the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave. These messengers come on the scene. The two angels, they stay with Lot and the men of the city surround Lot's house that evening. They want the two angelic visitors. They have no idea they're angelic visitors, <laughs> but they want these two men to be brought out. These men are gathered around Lot's home and they want the two men to be brought out, not to have a conversation, to have an intimate relationship with them. Efforts are made to rescue Lot, his wife, his two daughters. And then in 19, verse 24 of Genesis, the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And if we fast forward into the New Testament and we see that small book of Jude. In Jude, verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah are put forth as examples. Long removed from the book of Genesis, Jude is writing. And as he's writing, moved by the Holy Spirit, he's put in writing these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says in verse 7, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering vengeance of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah are set forth as an example to us, church. What characterized these two cities? Jude tells us, sexual immorality and going after strange flesh. A perverse and wicked land. The intercession of Abraham on behalf of the land is instructive. You might recall that. And there were less than ten righteous people in all the land. 
God's word holds forth examples for us to learn from. To not do so is or to profane these examples, to push them to the side, is to profane our God. He, he's teaching us by example through Sodom and Gomorrah how not to live, how not to operate. That way of living was not only rejected by God in the book of Genesis, but also in the day of Jude. And, and listen, God has not since changed his mind about wicked and perverse conduct. So he's looking from heaven and he sees all the inhabitants of the earth. Look at verses 16 and 17. No king is saved by the multitude of his army. I was reminded of that Ethiopian king who thought he had it all figured out with his one million man army. Remember that? A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. I was thinking of Samson. Remember him? He thought he had the strength to be able to break free and do what he had normally done time before. A horse is vain hope for safety. I was reminded of the countless numbers of horses in Solomon's possession. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. So we have a king, we have a mighty man, and we have a horse. And they're pictured as having great strength available to them. And yet not one of them can deliver or save or provide ultimate safety. What's the psalmist drawing our attention to? We serve a God who not only spoke creation into being, but a God who alone, a God who alone can deliver us and save us. And the psalmist seems to use the words saved and delivered in a different sense as you keep reading in verses 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their what? Their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. He said, the proverb writer says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 14, 27 says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. You see, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and hope in his mercy. The Lord is looking and observing the sons of men to see who's aligned in heart with the king of kings. He's watching to see if there's a submissive heart to his truth, a dependency upon his word and a reliance upon the object of this person's professed faith in Jesus Christ. To know that the eye of the Lord is upon you can be a scary proposition if you are without Christ. But it is so comforting, friends, to know if you are a child of his. For there's an assurance in the text that comes with the Lord's eye upon you. His eye is upon you to deliver your soul from death and, don't, don't miss the and, to keep you alive in famine. There seems to be a two-pronged objective here. Deliverance under eternal life and deliverance in the present fiery trials that you might be facing. Titus 3 verse 5 reminds us that it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, not by our own strength, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Psalm 33 verse 20 then says, Our soul 
waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. He is our present help who will by life or by death, either way, shield us and preserve us for our inheritance to come with the saints. Second Peter chapter 1. We have a reservation in heaven. It's reserved, kept for us. If you are in Christ and have the Spirit of Christ in you, you have that place of reservation in heaven. You have a place to be with Jesus, most importantly. You have a place where you will continue your worship of the only true God in Jesus Christ. And that seems to be the thought expressed in verse 21. For our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. It takes us back to the first three verses. We're called to worship the Lord. We were made to worship the Lord and to walk in his ways. And just as we are to worship him in these days, so too our hearts shall rejoice in him when we get to heaven. That song we sing, what a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus. We'll sing and shout, victory. Notice the condition of our future rejoicing. We will do so because we have trusted in his holy name. That's important for us to see. It's become, it's because we've made it a a, a pattern, a way of living. A pattern of how we've operated. And oh, that the Lord, as he looks down on the inhabitants of the earth, as he looks down on the sons of men here in this nation, that he would find hearts inclined to keep his statutes, that he would find hearts blazing with love for Christ, for his church, hearts captured by the very character and nature of God's presence, hearts that are tuned in to the truths of his holy word. So what's our response to Friday's ruling? For some, it might be anger. It might be bitterness. There will no doubt be a stirring of the pot as election time comes rolling around next year. As God's chosen people entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are called to endure. We are called to persevere. We are called to stand in the battle, continually strengthened in the power of his might. We learned that through Ephesians 6, didn't we? We're in a battle. How many of you know right now we're in a battle? (laughs) Yeah, it's a battle. We're seeing the the real-time effects of the battle. The Lord spoke to... Solomon in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And in verse 13 of that chapter, the Lord presents a scenario of drought upon the land, locusts devouring the fields, or pestilence and disease among his people. And then he says this in verse 14. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves... And pray and seek my face. And turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. 
and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Pray. Seek his face. And turn from our wicked ways. God has promised, not only to Solomon in his day, but I believe that promise holds true today for our nation. That he will hear from heaven. He will forgive our sin. He will heal our land. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Not by title only. Not by word speak. But blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people he has chosen as his own inheritance. We find ourselves in a position of crying out to the Lord. And that's where I'd like to end and I'd like to ask you to join me as I simply pray verse 22. I believe that's a prayer that we can be praying right now. Father, we pray and ask that your mercy be upon us just as we hope in you. Our hope is in you. And Father, we plead for your mercy, recognizing the sin of our nation, of which we are a part. I'm reminded of people like Nehemiah who, who spent much time in prayer And in his prayer in chapter 1, he too is coming before you, Lord. And he's praying on behalf of his people. But he himself is in the same boat. He includes himself in that picture. And Father, I pray that we would be diligent to humble ourselves before you, to repent of our sin, our wicked ways, Father, we pray and ask that you would show mercy, extend grace, we pray. We're praying, realizing and recognizing that you are God over all creation. That you are the ultimate judge of this nation, of this world. Father, in your hands is the power to destroy power to raise up. Father, I pray that we would be looking to you. The word tells us and shows us that you are looking at all the inhabitants of the world. Father, I pray that we would find ourselves constantly fixed and gazed upon your son Jesus. That as the the chorus speaks, we would turn our eyes upon Jesus and we would look full in his wonderful face. 
And as we do so, Lord, these things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Father, we thank you for the hope that you've given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. May that be the bedrock truth that we hold on to, the hope that you've granted to us of Jesus Christ, the hope of being with you, the hope of seeing Jesus, the hope of worshiping with the saints in the heavenly places. Positionally, Lord, your word says we are there if we are in Christ. But, oh, Lord, we look forward and long for the time when it is is true that we are with you. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.